Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The latest wave of COVID-19 cases was triggered by a combination of factors, among them a change in people's behaviour last month, Professor Philip Nolan has warned. Minister for Further and Higher Education Simon Harris is here to discuss the ongoing surge. Earlier today, Labour leader Alan Kelly raised the confusion over pubs and nightclub guidelines in the Dáil. I ask this in jest, of course, because we're not the same generation, but when was the last time you were in a nightclub? We know from yesterday that uh, that definition for you is, uh, is pretty uh, unknown. Britain's Queen Elizabeth has cancelled her planned visit to Northern Ireland. Journalist Amanda Ferguson will have the latest. And later, broadcaster Lorraine Keane has a warning after falling victim to a social media scam. Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. First tonight with concerns continuing over rising COVID-19 cases. A little earlier, I spoke to our news correspondent, Zara King. I began by asking her what the message was from the chief medical officer and his team of health officials today. Yes, good evening, Claire. Well, I think the overriding message from Dr Tony Houlihan is that he is worried and concerned about the situation, but he also remains somewhat optimistic and believes that things uh, can be turned around. But he's calling on people to go back to basics, uh, concerns about the fact that perhaps people have been uh, letting their guard down slightly when it comes to those basics, uh, like hand washing and wearing face coverings, those simple things that have uh, stood the test of time throughout the pandemic, perhaps things that people are sick of hearing about. Uh, Dr Tony Houlihan saying they're the things that can really uh, make a difference. When he talks about that worry and concerning rise in case numbers and particularly those hospitalisations and ICU numbers, Claire. He says we expect to see that that will follow a rise in the number of deaths being reported, unfortunately, um, in the coming weeks. He says there has been a drop in that collective um, adherence to the measures and he says uh, this is in large part to what we are seeing now. Um, just in terms of people watching this evening, Claire, they might be asking themselves, why is this happening to us here in Ireland? Um, you know, maybe looking at other countries and saying, uh, are we the only ones dealing with this situation? Well, Dr Ronan Glynn points to the fact this evening, Claire, that Germany, Austria, Belgium and the Netherlands and also the United Kingdom all seeing significant increases in cases recently. In fact, Dr Glenn pointing to the fact that in the UK, for example, they're reporting uh, 50,000 cases per day now and more than 6,000 people admitted to hospital. He also said that uh, sadly they were reporting a 21% increase in the number of deaths in the last week. So he said it wasn't something that was unique to Ireland. He said, in fact, it had been seen in many other countries. And Sarah, a lot of emphasis too on that rise, as you say, in hospital figures and the number of people in ICU, which has jumped 14 in the space of a day. 
Yes, Claire, 14 admissions to ICU in a 24-hour period is a very serious number. And of course, all of these measures throughout the pandemic have been put in place to protect that frontline, to protect the health service. We know those frontline workers have been through an incredibly difficult time. Uh, Professor Philip Nolan giving us a breakdown of some of those hospital numbers. Let's take a listen to what he said this afternoon. We've seen uh, over the last four weeks a progressive increase in the number of people in hospital and now an average uh, looking at 75 admissions per day and close to 500 people in hospital um, and looking at on average with this sudden increase today seven admissions per day over the last seven days uh, and of concern uh, is, is we're now at 52 people requiring mechanical ventilation in intensive care um, which, is, which is quite high compared to preceding periods. Um, this week, uh, an additional 63 deaths have been notified in the one week, and given the increase in case counts over the last um, two weeks, unfortunately, we will expect to see uh, an increase in mortality in the weeks to come. And of course, all of this, Sarah, against the backdrop of this reopening happening on Friday. So questions were asked today about how nightclubs in particular can safely operate. Yes, that's right, Claire, because obviously the Taoiseach yesterday, Neil Martin, talking about the fact that what traditionally happens in nightclubs uh, would continue to happen. So uh, directly, one of the reporters at the press conference this evening asking Dr Tony Hulin about kissing in nightclubs, about people uh, getting up close and personal. Dr Hulin, of course, saying that he wasn't going to interfere in people's life choices, but said that uh, people needed to make their own risk assessments when it came to uh, kissing in nightclubs. He said that uh, anyone who had symptoms at all shouldn't be in that nightclub setting, and it was really going to be down to individuals in terms of personal responsibility and not uh, going to a nightclub obviously if you have any sort of symptoms and as I say uh, asking people then to make their own uh, personal risk assessment when it came to that I suppose look to summarise what they're saying Claire tonight uh, Dr Hulan is saying that from a public health perspective we can't always know what is around the corner he says uh, if this doesn't work these current restrictions if they don't work NEF will have to come back and reconsider those restrictions. Zara at the Department of Health thank you so much for that update tonight. Minister for Further and Higher Education, Research, Innovation and Science, Simon Harris joins me now. You're very welcome, Minister, tonight to the show. Thank you very much. A lot of worry and caution on the week that we're finally due to lift those um, last restrictions. We did know that the modelling predicted a spike, a peak in mid-October, in fact, before these restrictions were due to be lifted when the Taoiseach announced them um, back when he did. But there's a sense that the government were caught unawares on it and now it's all back on us again, isn't it? Well, I think we've got to be truthful. I think everybody has been somewhat caught unawares. Um, for example, if you, very high-ranking members of the National Public Health Emergency Team as recently as a week or two ago were talking about how close we were to suppressing the virus. And I don't say that in any way to be critical of them. I make the point as to how quickly things can evolve and change. But we are, and I do want to say this for a sense of perspective this evening, we are in a different place to where we were a year ago. Because there can be, for listeners watching tonight, viewers watching tonight, there can be a little bit of, here we go again, a little bit of deja vu, a little bit of, oh no, another warning about COVID. And Yes, we do have to be careful, but we are now living in a country with over 90% of our population fully vaccinated. And what we decided to do yesterday was follow the NEFID advice that a pause wouldn't really have achieved what we'd like or perhaps think it might have achieved, and instead keep some measures in place that we were planning on getting rid of. So the vaccine search, better enforcement around the vaccine search, face masks, protective measures, 
but also trusting the people of this country to try and live safely alongside this virus that sadly isn't just going to disappear today or tomorrow, is going to be with us for some time here and around the world. So this is trying to live with COVID and it's not easy, it's complex, it throws up anomalies, you have to work your way through things, but there isn't a better or simpler way of doing it. And this is all happening as we're heading back into the winter months when we know there's already pressure on our hospitals. How concerned are you about the numbers in ICU? We see they've jumped um, by 14 in the space of 24 hours, as Sarah was explaining there, 86 people in intensive care. And yet, um, is there a plan to deploy surge capacity? Because the INMO have said they have significant capacity issues now, but the HSE as yet hasn't deployed that surge capacity. So you couldn't but be concerned in relation to the intensive care situation, particularly, as you say, the large increase. I think about 14 additional people have been admitted to intensive care over the course of the last day. Um, my understanding, though, is that the HSE have not yet needed to deploy any surge capacity. I would also point out that the arrangement we have in place with private hospitals to use that capacity uh, is also there. But there is a simple message for people tonight, and it is a stark one. While we live in a country where so many people are vaccinated, there are still many people for a whole variety of reasons, who are not fully vaccinated. There's about 70,000 people who have gotten one dose, but again, for whatever reason, have not come forward for a second dose. I was in Trinity College Dublin today, where about 500 students were estimated to get vaccinated. An awful lot of people ending up in our hospitals and ending up in our intensive care units are not fully vaccinated. And there is still time and an opportunity for you to take the decision to protect yourself, protect your family and protect your community. And we shouldn't lose sight of that message. Yes, we're very proud of our vaccination programme, but the job isn't done. Um, and we're going to continue to do everything we can to make sure everyone gets that opportunity to get vaccinated and to make it as easy as possible for them to do well, that. Why do you think people haven't got that second dose, that 70,000 you're talking about? And realistically, what chance have you got of getting those numbers vaccinated? Because we already have the highest compliance rates across uh, Europe and beyond. No, we do. And, 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 uh, but, I, but I'm still ambitious for us to do more. So just to give you an example, a sector higher and further education that I have responsibility for, if you look at the age group that generally is in that sector, people between maybe 16 and 29, there's about 155,000 people within that age group that are not yet fully vaccinated. Now, this isn't a judgment. This isn't a criticism. It's just we need to make do everything we can to make it as easy as possible. So this week, we're rolling out College Vaccination Week. And as I was saying, I was in a vaccination centre in a college today where we saw we were estimating about 500 people were coming forward today. About half of them were for the first dose. So I can't get inside the minds of everyone as to why people haven't come forward before now. But what I would say to people is in light of what we now know about where this virus is at, in light of the worrying situation in relation to ICU admissions and the fact that you're much more likely to end up in an ICU if you're not vaccinated, and also a reality that the vaccine cert is going to be a requirement now uh, for the months ahead, I'd encourage it's people to It's already been a, re a requirement in many places in order to dine indoors, in order mm -hmm. to... Uh, enjoy, enjoy a drink in a pub But well, remember, I suppose up until yesterday, the expectation was that that vaccine surge wouldn't be a legal requirement beyond Friday. That's now not the case. The national But is it working very well? Being really honest, I think there's been slippage in this and I don't have data on this, but I have the anecdote, but I have enough well, anecdotes. We do, no, we do have, we do have the re research back that shows that it's not being checked. Um, in, a third, in a third of cases. Yeah, and certainly what I'm just saying is I've heard lots of examples over the last couple of days where people have been telling me, oh, I was in this place or that place and my vaccine cert wasn't, wasn't checked. There's really two things we need to do around that. One is a job we have to do around better yeah. enforcement, but also I think a thing we all have to do to remember the vaccine cert isn't there to be an inconvenience or an irritant. It's there to A, make sure the business can open, but crucially, it's there to actually keep you yeah. safe. And if you're going into a premises and they're not asking you for your vaccine cert, there's no guarantee, therefore, that you're not in a, an indoor environment 
environment with people who are not vaccinated. We're going to have a situation come Friday that places are going to be open to full capacity. At the moment, they're not open to full capacity and the COVID certs are still not being rigorously checked. So with extra pressure on businesses, with extra numbers coming through, with queues at the door, with the clubs open, are we really sure that all those COVID certs are going to be checked, that they're going to be cross-checked with ID? It, it, it's going to be hugely problematic, isn't it? Well, I think it is going to be challenging, but I, don't, I, I think it's absolutely doable because the alternative, and I'd say this to business very, very clearly, and I've heard rep bodies say they're up for this. This is your way of being open and staying open. If you want to be able to open, if you want to be able to stay open, if you want to keep the customers coming in the door and the money coming into the till, you've got to play ball in relation to the okay. vaccine search. And we, as a government and our state agencies, will be ramping up enforcement. But also there's a bit, and I don't want to repeat myself, but there is a bit for all of us as citizens. If you're going into a restaurant, going into a pub, and they're not buying they're checking your COVID search, they're risking your health, go somewhere else. You know, if you're going with a big group of people and we know we're going to be approaching Christmas party season, already we know in November people are meeting up because they want, to, they want to meet up ahead of Christmas. It's getting busy and now we know we can go out. We can go out in bigger groups. The government is saying, do it. People aren't going to walk away from a restaurant, are they? Well, I think what people are going to do is they're going to go to an environment where they feel they can safely meet their friends, safely meet their family and know that everybody else in there is fully vaccinated. So it's a partnership approach here. It's industry and state doing its part around vaccine certs and enforcement and it's citizens also using what we've used throughout this pandemic, our own common sense, our own cup on, assessing, do I feel safe here? I mean, if I, want, if I go to a pub or a restaurant, I want to know. I want to know that everybody in that pub has been fully vaccinated, everyone in that restaurant has been fully vaccinated because that's what helps keep, keeps me safe. Would you feel safe in a nightclub? I'm not planning on going to, going to one today or tomorrow. Um, and I, and in, but I mean, I do think it's possible to safely open our nightclubs um, because we're now going to deploy a number of measures that weren't originally envisaged, making sure everyone in there is fully vaccinated, uh, making sure face masks are deployed in certain scenarios. And I also... What scenarios now? Well, well, scenarios where you could be congregating, walking in, walking out, moving to bathrooms, scenarios sure, that we see in the minute you're in the door, you have a drink in hand, yeah, or you're dancing, no, you I, can I, take the mask off. Being honest, I think, this is, I, think, I think the point you're making is fair, right? Because, and w because let's be honest, people move around nightclubs, they're, they're generally either having a drink or dancing in a nightclub. Isn't that what a lot of people go to nightclubs for? What we're doing now tonight, though, and indeed throughout the course of today, uh, my colleague Catherine Martin's department and other departments have been meeting with industry to draw up guidelines. The Taoiseach has said very clearly those guidelines will deploy a degree of common sense. For example, how do you safely get a drink at the bar so we don't have people congregating? And we're publishing those guidelines tomorrow. We're trying to work with industry to make sure that they're, they're grounded in common sense. So are, also we, are we going health. to see a change then in, in what was announced? Because what was announced was if you have a pub, you can't go to the bar, you have to sit down, it's table service only. But if it's a nightclub, it's a different situation. So are we going to see pubs now allowed serve people at the bar? So I truthfully can't preempt what's going to be decided by tomorrow. But what I can say is at every stage of COVID, when we've announced reopening, there have always been things that needed to be teased through. Do you remember we used to differentiate between wet pubs and dry pubs? Do you remember we used to say we there did, was a requirement to have... did, and the publicans remember it well. Yeah, no, absolutely. But these, these are the points I'm making. We have constantly tried to innovate and come up with new and different ways to get business open, but crucially to keep people safe. Yes, we should be talking about nightclubs and how they're going to operate, but we should also be talking about the fact that there's 86 people in our intensive care units tonight in a very, very critically yeah. ill condition. And we We've got to balance that. And we do have a couple of tweets in on that, Minister. Sure. People saying, if we're so concerned, that, that, that why are we using restrictions? And someone else saying, why are we opening up so much given we've one of the highest case incidences in the EU? 
And the truth is because of this letter that I have here in front of me that has been published from the National Public Health Emergency Team, which says that they very strongly considered the idea of a pause. They looked at a pause and their assessment, not to put words in their mouth, okay. but the way I would describe it is their assessment was that a pause wouldn't change the trajectory of this virus. Instead, what they recommend we do is really knuckle down on the basics, but also on some additional measures that we were planning on getting rid of. So to, the, to that tweeter, I would say, you know, we were, we were planning on living in a country where face masks would not be required except in very small circumstances, where vaccine certs would be gone. Instead, we're keeping them, we're rolling out antigen testing, we're rolling out booster vaccines, um, and we're making sure there's greater enforcement of the existing restrictions. But no guarantee, of, no guarantee that we won't see restrictions reimposed. Truthfully, I don't think there's a politician or a doctor in the world who can give that guarantee. Um, so many people have tried to give guarantees around, around COVID to find the situation has, has evolved quickly. But what I can say is, following the public health advice, all of us doing everything we can to apply that in our own lives is the best way we okay. can. Okay, I want to get onto your area of third level sure. education and particularly the rental crisis because we should be talking about going back to college, the college year, and isn't it great for students being back after a year, a year or more out of college? But, you know, I read an article today in the Irish Independent about um, one student who drives every day from Monaghan to Maynooth and back 280 kilometres round trip a day because he can't afford any accommodation beside his university. That's completely wrong yes. and nothing the government has done has changed that. It is completely wrong and when you're in government you have to be big enough sometimes to actually admit that you need to try new things and not just trot out the old statistics about how this, that and the other we're doing to try and make the situation better. So what I'm doing with Dara O'Brien, uh, the Minister for Housing, is trying to now build college-owned affordable accommodation. That's what the student unions have told me they've wanted. I've met them and engaged with them extensively on this. We have met the colleges very, very recently and we've asked them to come forward with both short-term proposals where there might be buildings they can acquire, facilities that used to be used that could be quickly turned into student accommodation and also to get a pipeline of projects going that will take longer. In the immediate term, I'm also doing things which we may not have time to get into, but we're increasing the money in the student assistance fund. This is a hardship fund for students who can struggle, who are struggling to make ends meet. We've also sure. changed the so law. So many students are struggling to, to make ends meet, Minister. We're hearing about food banks um, in University College Cork. I'm sure it's not yeah, the only yeah, college that has the food banks. People are sleeping on couches, they're staying in hotels sure. because they can't afford the rent. They're looking at one beds for €1,200. Euro. Sure. Um, but, but on they're the deferring UCC, college. On the UCC food bank, because I, indeed I, show, I saw your programme cover that, I've spoken to the president uh, of UCC Students' Union. I mean, we have allocated uh, over €1.2 million Euro to help students who are in financial difficulty. I don't want any students to have to go to a food bank. We've made changes in the budget around Susie's student supports, the first in over a decade. But I'm not sitting here tonight suggesting, nobody in government can, that all is well in housing. Of course it isn't. But what I am saying is, rather than trotting out the statistics, I'm going to deploy a new policy, a policy where we're going to allow our institutions borrow at cheap rates to build affordable accommodation. But the require, that word affordable is important. I won't be giving one red yes. cent to colleges to build uh, accommodation that's too expensive for us. Well, the to President access. of DCU last month said the lack of a sustainable and economically viable housing model for student accommodation uh, is both off and on campus. Means it, it's, it's, just, it's not there, they can't do it, and whatever money's been given to, given to them isn't enough to, to build when you look at the cost of construction and what they're trying to do for students. So uh, what's happening now isn't enough. 
And I think he makes a fair point. And what I'm saying to, to Dara Kyo, the president of DCU, and to all our college presidents is, we're putting a mechanism in place for our universities to be able to borrow at cheap rates to build. But there will be a quid pro quo. We've got to build accommodation that students can actually afford, rather than accommodation, you know, rather than ministers yeah. being invited to cut ribbon on student accommodation that no student could actually afford. And, and that's we, happening. Are we going to see a rent freeze? Because that's one of the big things. My colleague, Minister Dara O'Brien, is bringing forward more rental proposals to Cabinet shortly, and I'll, I'll await him bringing those forward. Would you like to see it? Um, yeah, if, if it achieves what it's meant to achieve, if it actually makes sure that we don't damage supply, uh, that we actually continue to see an increase in housing supply in general in the country. Um, we have tried a number of measures already. We've seen rent caps. We've seen efforts to try and link rents to inflation. But we do now know inflation is now rising. So uh, Minister O'Brien is going to look at the issue again. OK, Minister, on the subject of the allegation of the Cabinet leak, um, you've said that you didn't leak the Catherine Zappone recommendation from Cabinet. Of course, it follows the allegation that was made by Sinn Féin's McCarthy, underdog privilege, saying it was you who had leaked that information. And you said last month that you were strongly considering uh, making a complaint to the Oireachtas Committee on Procedures and Privileges in relation to that. Have you done that? So, firstly, what I've done is I've spoken to the Ciam um, I'm waiting to hear back from the Ciam Corla and I don't wish to say more about that until I do. Um, but I do note the comments that the Ciam Corla has publicly made in relation uh, to that political slur in the Dáil. And I very much welcome those comments. Dáil privilege is there for very important reasons. Um, it's not there to stand up and make uh, an allegation for which there is absolutely no evidence uh, so that then everybody can repeat that allegation in an effort to slur somebody's good name. So you've made a complaint to the Ciam Corla, but not to the Oireachtas Committee? I've spoken to the Ciam Corla, who obviously is the chair of the Dáil, and I think the chair of the Committee on Procedures and Privileges, and I'm waiting to hear back from the Ciam And what are you expecting? I, I don't want to preempt that process, but I haven't spent much time, obviously, thinking about a political slur. I, I know why it was done. This is a tactic that people sometimes deploy to try and damage people's reputations. I'm just getting on with the job. OK, we'll leave it there, Minister. Thanks Thank so you for joining us on the programme tonight. Now, in other news, Britain's Queen Elizabeth has cancelled her planned visit to Armagh and Down, where she was due to attend a church service tomorrow, marking the centenary of Northern Ireland. Journalist Amanda Ferguson joins me now via Skype. And Amanda, this news that um, Queen Elizabeth won't be making the commemoration, it was on the grounds of, of medical need that, that she has decided um, to stay in England. Yes, that's right. A statement came out just before midday to say that uh, reluctantly the Queen was cancelling her planned visit. She was due to arrive today. Uh, it was essentially for that a series of engagements, but really for that uh, sort of controversial church service which is taking place uh, in Armagh tomorrow that, that President Higgins had declined the invitation to. So the statement said that uh, from Buckingham Palace said that it wasn't COVID related um, and that the, the Queen had hoped to, would hope to visit um, you know, Northern Ireland again soon. Uh, and Amanda, you know, what's the mood like there now over this um, event, which has become very controversial because the main invitees are not attending? Yes, it, it's a, a really awkward set of circumstances. I'm sure the, the organisers are, are tearing their hair out when they consider that it's supposed to be a, a reconciliation event. But this has been a recurring theme whenever it's come to um, Northern Ireland centenary events. You know, some people view it as the creation of Northern Ireland. Other people view it as the partition of Ireland. Um, and it certainly uh, doesn't draw a consensus. So we know that uh, Boris Johnson and Brandon Lewis uh, will be there to represent the UK government. We know obviously uh, Simon Coven will be representing 
represented in the, the Irish government. The five main parties uh, in the north uh, will have reps except for Sinn Féin. So the DUP, the Ulster Unionists, uh, the SCLP and Alliance have accepted their invites and Sinn Féin have declined theirs. But I think certainly there's a sense that uh, there's a little bit of uh, talk perhaps in the north that it's quite convenient uh, because the, the the Queen had been sort of embroiled in essentially what was a turning into a political row uh, that, that they wonder, you know, was this sort of a pull in a sickie as such? Uh, but certainly, um, you know, we have to accept what Buckingham Palace is saying that you know the Queen is 95 years old and that uh, her medics have told her not to not to visit. But it depends who you ask as to whether people believe that or not. Okay, my thanks to you, journalist Amanda Ferguson, for joining us with an update on those commemorations. Now, coming up after the break, Professor Sam McConkey will be here for more COVID-19 discussions. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Well, at an effort briefing earlier today, Professor Philip Nolan said too many of us are assuming that because we're vaccinated, those symptoms that we're experiencing are, are not COVID and therefore we're running the risk of transmitting the virus onto others. Well, infectious diseases specialist Professor Sam McConkie, Social Democrat co-leader Roisin Shortall and Fianna Fáil TD Cormac Devlin are here with me now. Um, a warning from NEFID today that we're coming into the winter months. There's a lot of viruses doing the rounds. COVID is still there and the numbers of people getting COVID are growing by the day. How worried are you, Sam? Uh, my view is that we need to remember what we've learned from the last year and a half in that if we're sick, stay at home. If we're contact of someone who's sick, uh, stay at home. Be, be tested, go and get tested and uh, wash your hands, wear a mask, stay in ventilated places rather than crowded indoor places. So I, I think those basics really should and I think most people are continuing those and, and I'm delighted that we now have mask wearing in an ongoing way for the next few months. Now you just said stay in ventilated places away from crowded indoor places. The nightclubs are opening up on Friday, but it's not... Yeah, so I guess there's a balance there. These industry, the people who run the nightclubs have been out of uh, function for a year and a half. And, and it's nothing against the nightclubs. Like, they're very keen. They have been closed for, for so long. So, so gigs and venues and concerts. The question is, can they sustain a more prolonged period of closure? And I, I, I would fear that they, 
many of them won't, yeah. and I think that would be a huge loss to our whole world and society if we lose, uh, you know, live music and and dancing and singing in nightclubs. So, so I think it's it is. I, I think it's the right thing to do to open them, but I hope they are applying the COVID certs and avoiding crowding and perhaps you know table service. And I, I haven't seen the details yet of exactly how they're going to operate uh, the nightclubs, but I hope it's done in a relatively safe way, mostly yeah. for vaccinated people. Just thinking of a scenario where someone does present a COVID cert, but they have got COVID yeah. and they go into a club, how quickly can it spread? So how many people might they uh, spread it to is a very reasonable question because if you've say four or five hundred people in there and and they spread it to the the, the risks um, from from household transmission is about one in five uh, will will catch it so but that's what we do in households in nightclubs you know we do get more intimate with other people than we might at homes for example so it could be higher and there have been instances of outbreaks in Korea and the states there have been several instances actually of nightclubs where people are singing and loud music and dancing and crowded of, of big what are called super spreader events where you have maybe 20 or 50 people infected from one original source person. So certainly and that's why they have been closed for the last year and a half. Uh, but, but I think if we can do it in a way that's not overcrowded, vaccinated people also lessens the risk of people with COVID being there. And obviously if people are sick, we shouldn't be going to work and we shouldn't be going to nightclubs. Yeah, I suppose it's the cases that maybe people aren't very symptomatic. They've been vaccinated, they feel okay, mm. and they want to get out and about as well. They might after 19 months of staying in. And um, Roisin Shortall, what's your take on this? Because there's so much talk since Tuesday, since the announcement was made about you know confusion, a lack of clarity, and that it's an incoherent approach. Um, are you happy to see venues reopening, to see those um, that, that big reopening that, that so many in the sector really need? Well, I think it's important that we strike a balance. You know, society needs to open up, uh, the economy needs to continue and people need to uh, have a life as well. But we need to do that in a way that's as safe as possible. And I think there's a number of areas that have been completely overlooked. I mean, Sam mentioned the question of ventilation. It's hardly been mentioned in all of this. Um, today, there are new ads on the radio which reference ventilation. It's the first time it's been named and like we've known for nearly since the very beginning that uh, that COVID was an airborne virus. And yet that whole issue of good ventilation, putting in, in ventilation systems, air purification systems in buildings, in schools in particular, wasn't even considered. And like the only thing that the government did in relation to ventilation was provide some CO2 monitors in schools. And that's just not good enough. I mean, it's, it's been suggested that the government could have put an air purification system in every classroom in the country for 10 million euro, for example, and 10 or 12 million euro and that should have been done and equally you know for hospitality for um, public okay. buildings there should have been proper ventilation yep. systems but could I also say I mean along with ventilation the government has done very little about uh, antigen testing. Well they have announced uh, it today and we will get to yeah. that but just okay. on that issue of ventilation it's something all the experts agree on Cormac that, that, that this is airborne and if ventilation is there it, it, it cuts the, the, the chance of the virus spreading. 
Correct, it does. So why aren't we putting money into that? And why aren't we enforcing good ventilation in our buildings across the country? Well, over the last number of months and, you know, last year and a half, there have been supports for businesses um, to try and improve their premises, um, to try and give them the option of reopening. And one of them is ventilation. And there have been others in, in terms of improving their outdoor um, seating. Um, so there was a recognition from, the er from early on. I remember a couple of days though before reopening and restaurants were saying we've got go no guidelines on ventilation we've been told nothing and this was maybe the weekend before they were due to reopen and how would you put good ventilation in place especially in some of the older buildings well some look some of the venues I mean you mentioned nightclubs for instance some of the venues already have ventilation you know in place um, now I'm sure we could all think of ones that don't but there is but the, the reality is and I would agree with Roisin on some aspects we do need to make sure that we have the economy reopen and where we wanted to be on Friday the 22nd was a complete reopening unfortunately like many things during this pandemic we haven't we've had to move um, so like on the guidelines and on the information given to businesses that are going to reopen thankfully um, you know they are being worked through as we speak yeah what um, do you think about the, the we're hearing now that you'll have to socially distance to go to the bar. Yeah. That's not going to work, is it? Look, some of the measures uh, we're going to learn as they are implemented, and we also have to ensure that they are implemented uh, where possible because this is about reopening, reopening safely. Um, a, a lot of people, particularly young people, want to see uh, bars and nightclubs reopen. Certain, certain, but certain students haven't been in a nightclub. Uh, you know, if they were in fifth year two years ago, they've never seen the inside of a nightclub at all. So, I mean, there is that cohort too. But they probably have. Ah, well, they may have, but that's a different issue. Okay. This is three days before businesses are due to open and the government still hasn't worked out guidelines in relation to ventilation and they're engaging today and tomorrow and in the coming days. I mean, why wasn't this thought through beforehand? You, um, it, you know, there's yeah. a lot of confusion now about what so businesses can because, do. Because, you know, pubs weren't happy about a lack of bar service and, you know, gigs and musicians weren't happy that everyone would have to be seated. Do you think they'll have to row back on a lot of... The, the mitigation measures, so basically what the government wanted to do, which would see more of a restricted reopening, do you think they're going to have to just let it, let it be more open in order to be fair to all parts of the industry? Well, the difficulty is, of course, that the figures are going in the wrong direction. And we have very high case numbers at the moment. We are in a surge. And the figures in the hospitals, you know, are extremely tight. 464 people in hospital, 86 in ICU. You know, only a handful of ICU beds available. And you know, that is the, the, the absolute priority here. So, you know, while places are opening, it's really important that those mitigation measures I are hope, got right. I hope, Claire, it's almost the opposite. That in fact, we've more enforcement of things yeah. like COVID vaccine certs in pubs and restaurants, which, you know, yeah. most of us have and seen antigen. a lot, of, but not completely. So we need to see really robust enforcement. Restaurants are, most of them have a license. Pubs all have a license. So they're regulated industries, Correct. they're regulated properties. So it is possible to enforce how they let people in and insist that they check people's COVID vaccine cert before they actually come yeah. into the thing. And I'd like to see better enforcement, which I hope happens on Friday. So we shouldn't see this as some sort of freedom day, like Boris Johnson's words from England. They had to roll back from that. And, and we need to yeah. delete that completely. It's sort of simplistic and binary and, and fundamentally okay. wrong. A lot of people are saying the antigen test announcement came, uh, it was very welcome, very late, but it finally came this week. What do you think about the plans around antigen testing? A good so, thing? So, so 
I, I think the language we're using is, is not nuanced enough to, to get to the heart of the problem, that there are 40 to 45 different commercial antibody tests, or antigen tests, sorry, and some of them, which in fairness, myself and some of my colleagues were involved in evaluating them early on, and they turned up not to perform very well, poor sensitivity, low specificity, and were quite different when we evaluated them independently from what the makers claimed on the tin. So that's why there's been a lot of fear. Of How do you know to, that you're buying the right one then? Because we are, I mean, the, the government is encouraging, and I think people would welcome it, this idea that you would self-test if you're going to meet relatives, if you're going on a night out and you're meeting friends or large groups, exactly. that you would, you would test so, yourself. So, so how do you pick the right one? Just as how if you go to the pharmacy and buy an aspirin tablet, that uh, component of that chemical of aspirin in the box has been regulated by the health HPRA. Okay. Similarly, we need, uh, there is, a, in fact, Mary Horgan, one of my colleagues from Cork, Professor of Infectious Disease, is, is chairing the committee to actually give that sort of advice to the government as to which antigen tests are reliable. Okay. And it needs independent advice evaluation, not just what the companies tell a, you. Is there a, a lack of regulation around antigen tests? Because if there is and you can pick them up in one place and they're absolutely useless, there's no point in them. Well, I think that the last time I was on the show, actually, the CMO had cautioned against that exact point about some of them not being the efficacy and not being uh, sufficient enough. But I think, look, it is really important that we've moved to use antigen testing um, because it is going to allow people who maybe haven't been vaccinated or can't be vaccinated uh, to actually enter premises. That's an important part. Um, now, one thing that Roisin had said earlier, like the Social Democrats weren't even supportive of the COVID cert in the, in the first instance, saying it was going to cause chaos. No, and, no, and, no, no, and, that's wrong. And, 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 that's wrong. And, 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 well, correct you on okay. that. Okay. And then the, the other thing is, is that now that it's actually we're in use, uh, we're going to have antigen on top of that. Um, and you know, a lot of these premises, okay. as, as Professor McConkie said, they're licensed premises. Roisin, do you want to respond to that? Just if, when that legislation came in first, there was a situation where many people weren't able to access vaccines, and we were arguing for people who were in that situation who couldn't get a vaccination or for, for whatever reason, that they could use antigen testing. And like, look, why is it that 20 months into the virus now, we're only now starting to talk about standards for antigen testing? Like, it's all very well for the government to say people should take responsibility and we all have to be responsible in what we do. But there are areas where it's not down to individuals, it's down to the state to set standards in ventilation, in antigen testing in enforcement of the COVID certs. Now, that's the responsibility of government. And why is it that they haven't done that before now? Um, Sam, I just want to ask you about what we're likely to see over the next four to six weeks. We will, after Halloween, be talking about Christmas, the run into Christmas, uh, the fear of a repeat of last year. Where, how do you see it all playing out now in the coming weeks? Yeah, I would like to reassure the listeners that What's going to happen over the next four or eight weeks, I believe will be quite different from what happened in January of this year or indeed March and April of last year, which was obviously horrible for all of us. So we're, we're in a very, very different situation. And the models that I've been using and a lot of us using are, are difficult in this complex time when there's some people vaccinated, some not, and there's different age profiles of vaccination. So there's a bit of uncertainty there. I'm been looking at what happened in Israel and, and UK mm. and there it does seem to that as things open up there, there there's a rise as we're seeing. Um, I expect that will go on between another two to six weeks and then it will plateau and then it will gradually start to drop. 
I'm hoping that we do have enforcement of things like vaccine certs and I'm hoping that you know we've continued uptake in the, in the vaccination because as the unvaccinated get COVID, then they get partial immunity. Right. Okay. So that's what we're depending on. The, 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 those who have not yet got vaccinated, children and, and unvaccinated will, will get COVID and get partial immunity. Okay. And that, then they're protected for a period of time. All right. So um, slightly hopeful note to finish on. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to the panel. Uh, coming up after the break, Lorraine Keane will be here to tell us how she fell victim to a social media scam. Stay with us. Welcome back. Now with online scams on the rise, broadcaster and businesswoman Lorraine Keane and tech editor for the Irish Independent, Adrian Weckler, join me now. And Lorraine, you're very, both very welcome along. Lorraine, you're here with us tonight because you've been targeted in a scam with a message on social media, uh, on Instagram, mm -hmm. and an email. Yes. So, and, and you fell for it. What happened? I think these scams um, and these cyber criminals are just getting more and more sophisticated. Um, I would think that I'm quite tech savvy. Uh, I've been building up my social media accounts for probably the best part of six years. And I know, and we labour the point at home the whole time, Claire, with my two teenagers, and Peter is very tech savvy. They're probably the most tech savvy out of all of us, to be perfectly honest. But we know not to click on links, mm -hmm. not to give any passcodes, passwords, account details, all of that stuff. But they came at me from all angles, really. So I had just put up a post. Peter was making dinner, it was Friday evening. I was still trying to get through emails and things as you do. Um, so I was distracted um, and almost simultaneously I got a message on my Instagram privately saying um, your last post uh, violates the advertising laws of you know, hashtag SP, sponsored post, or hashtag ad. Um, so I went immediately into my Instagram going, what are they talking about? And I saw that I had a repost there from an event that I'm doing with the Gloss Magazine and Frascati in Dublin, and I thought, okay, maybe, maybe it's theirs. So I looked into it, and no, it was hashtag SP. At the same time, got an email saying the same thing, and as I say, I was distracted. And I clicked on the link because they, I mean, as they always do, they had all the Instagram logos, they had, you know, all the right details. They were speaking the language that I've, I've answered to before where it wasn't a scam. So I'm and trying it, yeah. to make myself not to be out to be a complete so just it, it appeared to be a verification, like when you see yes. something and then you simultaneously yes. get an email. Yeah. Um, they began physically demanding a, a ransom, calling yes. you. Yeah, so that so how I noticed was we had dinner and about twenty minutes, half an hour later, you know, I was um, had picked up my phone, pressed into Instagram and it was gone. It was completely gone from my phone. So Peter had a look and it was still on his but the name had been changed, the image had been changed, uh, the details had been changed, everything was still there. But at that stage, what we did was we tried to, to salvage the other accounts. They completely wiped out my Twitter account. We had different passwords, thank goodness, for Facebook, so I managed to keep them. Um, but they got into my Google Mail, they had my phone number, they started phoning me on WhatsApp because the foreign number came up. I didn't engage with them because I know not to, but then the ransom demands kept coming in and, and this just went on and on throughout the and weekend. What were they looking for? Initially, it was $100, um, and I, I saw it on the top line, so I never pressed in, so they didn't know that I had read it, but they just kept coming and coming. Um, but then they started mentioning personal details, 
and I knew that they were, you know, very much in my accounts yeah. as a whole, you know. It's really frightening, isn't it, Adrian? Like, you think you're safe, okay, it's one thing feeling that your password has been compromised. It's another thing when you start getting texts demanding money, wiping your accounts, making you feel very vulnerable and like they have a whole heap of information on you. But this is something that's on the rise. Yeah, it's a huge problem. So that kind of hijacking of social media has been a big issue in the last year or two. We've also seen uh, ransomware, for example, is a major issue. Um, this is what happened to the HSE earlier this year. Uh, it's going to cost the HSE over 100 million euro. We think the ransomware attackers in that case were demanding 20 to 30 million euro. We wrote a story today in the Irish Independent uh, quoting a survey that says over half of Irish small businesses have been have paid a ransom, a ransomware ransom, and the average is over twenty thousand euro. And that that is so much money. That is pretty minor by international comparisons. For most big companies, the average ransom paid is closer to half a million euro. That's standard. I'm just surprised that people are paying it. Yeah. Are, are they well, getting all their data back when they pay no. out? No. So in this survey, for example, which is only one of many, a quarter of those surveyed said it made no difference. They didn't get their data fully restored. Half said that they found some of their information leaked on the dark web. The problem is, if you're a small business and you're being, you, you've a lot of customers, you've a lot of processes in train, and you know that you're not going to get that information back unless you pay the ransom, even though the advice is not to pay the ransom, it's very difficult not to do that when you've hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of, of euro uh, on the line. So what is the advice? Um, because I know, Lorraine, you contacted Facebook on this, mm -hmm. but their helpline wasn't open. Temporarily closed on a Friday, Friday night, yeah. I did get them on Saturday um, and I was told to report to the Gardaí, which I didn't realise you should do um, because it was, you know, foreign, it was online and whatever. And I did and they were actually very helpful in Blackrock Garda Station and they contacted Facebook for me as well. And also through Connor Pope, he put me in touch with um, an Adrian, so it was Paul C. Dwyer and he also advised me. But the things that we need to do that I was told, three very, very simple steps, and you know these, is to have a strong password um, and a different password for every account. And a strong password meaning not your, your dog's name or not a pet name that you have for somebody, not your date of birth, not something to do with your address, something that's really obscure with numbers, higher case, lower case, you know, question marks, mm. all, the, all those kind of things, and have different ones for each account. And the 2FA, the two-factor authentication is massive you'll get a too, text. isn't it? You'll get a text. Yeah. But if you want to know how common this is, there's a site called haveibeenpawned.com, very completely reputable, legitimate site. If you visit that site and put in your email address or more than one of your email addresses, it will tell you immediately which of your online accounts has been compromised, oh, possibly, no. possibly with your password compromised. Now, the problem for and most of us do? is we use the same password for, for an awful lot, mm. lot of accounts. Yeah, we, so yeah, if we one do. is compromised, mm. The rest is compromised. What we shouldn't use. all admit that, of course. I'm sure you don't. <laughs> I don't so anymore. No, of Never course, will I, again. Of course <laughs> I don't. Um, but and what what they use this for is they'll get into one account. They'll maybe try and send emails or texts, knowing some personal details about you. They'll get into your other accounts and they go deeper and deeper and deeper until it results in either uh, a ransom demand or something else. Is a trick when your advice say, I know on, I'm, I'm sure on other mobile devices that they recommend a strong password and you can set that. Y you you don't know what it is. I mean, yes. it's full of numbers. It's about digits. 20 letters and yeah. numbers. And is that you, a good idea? It is a good idea. Sometimes there is the fear that if you're doing that, you're captive to one ecosystem. Like if you use an iPhone, for example, it will always suggest that. That makes you much less likely to 
leave your iPhone or to leave iOS. It's still a good idea to do it though. It's a very bad idea to use the same password for multiple accounts. Mm -hmm. Have you lost all your information or have you managed to get it back? Well, so far. Obviously without paying. Yeah, because I didn't engage them and I didn't and the, and the ransom demands went up and up and up and I knew that if, you know, if I, you know, engage them at all that that would happen so um, they just kept demanding and you know kept telling me that they had all my personal details and it was just like for me it is a small business but it is a massive a significant amount of, of my kind of earnings and it was like somebody putting a match to your business mm -hmm. and just watching it burn piece by piece because they were saying to me on Saturday morning on text um, we're going to delete your posts uh, one every second and my daughter Romy went on my Instagram and you could see them just deleting one by one by one. And then I'd get messages saying, one more button and your account is completely and it, gone. And it's so personal. Yeah, well, I, there are photographs business. up there that are personal, absolutely. It's been amazing for the charity work that I do. I wouldn't have had fashion relief during the pandemic if it wasn't for online and my social media accounts. And yeah, it's my little business too. So yeah. it was very, oh. I just, you just feel so vulnerable, Claire. Like it was just horrible. It felt like there was some, some criminal, some murky criminal just living in the house with us for the entire weekend, you know? And the, the vulnerability much. that's there, when we look at a growing number of kids going online as well, Adrian, are they very vulnerable to this kind of scamming that, that you know, criminals can get personal information about well, young children? Counterintuitively, kids are actually better defended against a lot of this stuff because they take privacy more, more seriously. The services they use t tend to be services like Snapchat, which have privacy by default. They're disappearing messages most of the time. They grow up not really trusting a lot of the systems that we trust. They don't use the, the IT in the same way. I do have to say, though, it would help if there was a stronger message coming from on high. We broke a story last month that the HSE is still using 30,000 PCs with Windows 7, the obsolete Windows 7 uh, on it. Ireland ranks 52nd in the world in terms of uh, cybersecurity between Tunisia and Nigeria. Oh. So, the, you know, we, we have a long way to we go. We have a long way to go. Okay, well, that's it from us. My thanks to Lorraine and to Adrian. Our show will be broadcasting live from the Workmen's Club in Dublin City Centre tomorrow evening on the eve of the latest reopening phase. But from all the late team here tonight, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.